0: And if you're a solo entrepreneur, you have to develop a leadership team, you know, who can take this company on. And so you've got to develop leaders within your company that can continue to run it. Um, I think one of the things I'm seeing, cause, uh, we, we may acquire other companies and so we're, we're dating <laughs> other companies and I've seen poor financial statements. So pre- following, um, you know, acceptable accounting practices when you're creating your financials is going to be really critical.
1: Welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast, where we discuss the
2: latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry.
1: I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make
2: that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros
1: Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing really well. How are you?
2: I am fantastic. Woo, So great to be back here, recording another episode with you. We've got a great guest today, but I've got a question for you. Oh, OK. When you go to, let's say, a museum, what is it that pulls you in to an exhibit that makes you want to stand there or sit there or engage with that exhibit and really immerse yourself in the story that it's trying to tell you? What, what sort of draws you in? What a question. Well,
1: first, hopefully I have some interest or curiosity in the content, whether it is science, history, art, etc. And then what, uh, you know, what what does it look like, right? What does, how is it presented? Is it, uh, is there a lot of reading that I need to do? Or can I look, can I watch, can I listen, can I I can I can I play with a cranky do uh, <laughs> what is it that is going to get the information from the museum into my head that is going to resonate well and make me say oh this is a great exhibit and a lot to think about her
2: yeah yeah, and I think I'm i'm kind of similar in that way you know the visual is what kind of draws you in a lot. And then where do you get the information? Is it from something you're hearing or, you know, something you're seeing on a screen or um, something that you have to read? And I know for me, maybe I'm just a little impatient, but when I see a lot of text, a lot of words, if those first couple sentences don't really grab me, I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to keep reading the rest of it. And, you know, part of that maybe the way I've experienced museums in the past where maybe there's people coming up behind me and I don't want to spend too much time right doing that and and thinking that I'm gonna you know hold that hostage that piece of information hostage where somebody else can't come up and and see it but um, I think you know for for me it's very similar like I've got to be kind of engaged with that topic already Um, and hopefully whatever the the overall overarching topic of that museum is you know that's of what drew me in in the first place um but then you know for specific exhibits there are things i think that will you know trigger different things for different people and that's what makes it so cool is because there's so many different things that could be you know great for mom or dad or little kids or people with you know interest in certain parts of history or or whatever so um i would also think that makes the exhibit designer's job that much more difficult
1: Yes, I I cannot imagine the challenge of designing (laughs) exhibits, but we get to talk all about it today with Betty Brennan. She is the founder of Taylor Studios. She was the president until very recently. She is transitioning out of that role and taking on the founder and ambassador role of Taylor Studios, which designs exhibits for uh, museums and and
2: attractions of various scopes and sizes. And what I think is really cool about the story that that Betty talks about is how it's not just about the creative side of the exhibit, but very uh, much focused on the foundation of the business side so that these creative minds can continue to create these things that look cool and engage you and and draw you in, um, but also sustain a business so that you can keep doing that over and over and over again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We definitely talk a lot about the the art and the business uh, side of exhibit design today, which is a, a very fascinating angle to look at it from. Uh, particularly as sometimes the business might put some guide rails or some walls around the capacity for the art creation, which ultimately creates more creativity than if there were no barriers or parameters around there. So we talk a little bit about that. Uh, we talk about the way that they deliver those stories by following the mission of the client that they're working with. So we talk about mission-based storytelling, which is really fascinating and something that I think a lot about as far as, well, how do you get the story to the most passive visitor? There's the person who comes in and they just want to check it all off the box and say that they did it. Uh, And then they might say, well, you know, I, I thought there was going to be more. Well, there was more. You just (laughs) zoomed right through it right I and then we also talk even more about the really the business side not just of exhibit design but small business in general and I think that this will definitely resonate with a with a good portion of our audience particularly if you're working both on the operator or the supplier side uh, of a business within the attractions industry as far as what's your exit strategy what happens after you are no longer affiliated with the business so we cover a lot of that topic as well.
2: Yeah, and I think that's really fascinating the way Betty talks about all the, you know, I'm I'm sure we didn't cover all of them, but many different options, right, that people would have um, as an exit strategy and something that we really should be thinking about, especially if if you're a business owner and you're the one signing the checks and you're the one that, you know, maybe created the business at some point, you're not going to be part of that business anymore. And what does that look like? She talks about the, what was the, the, the death and the drooling conversations, you know, like if she fell off a horse, what would you do in the business? And, and having those really critical conversations and having the process or the plan in place so that the, the transition, you know, is, is not disruptive to the team, to the, the clients, um, and to the business in general. Yeah, absolutely. So should we get to this interview with Betty Brennan? Let's do it. Betty, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today?
0: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
2: Absolutely. We're so excited to have this conversation and learn more about you and Taylor Studios. Can you start it off by talking a little bit about you and kind of your history in the industry?
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, I started Taylor Studios uh, 30 years ago. In my background, I have an MBA, so I'm the business side of an art creative business. Um, and so I've been running the company as president since then. Uh, I co-founded the company with Joe Taylor. He was the artist. I was the business person. Um, and so, yeah, I've been doing the sort of the business side of the business um, ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so what led to that partnership um, to start Taylor Studios?
0: Yeah, you know, it was a really humble start. We met in college, like he lived across the street. He was, uh, you know, the artist and I was the business. And we learned about this industry. When we were in college, he got a job working for a taxidermist, um, Gary Breeze, who is in our industry too. And they got a job to make trees for a nature center. And then we realized it was whole industry. And we're like, holy cow, we can do this for a living? How cool is that? You know, we're both very outdoorsy. I love nature. I love history. And so with that combination of of business and art, um, it was a great Place to start to maybe create a business kind of thing. So, it it's we met there and uh, you know went off and finished my master's degree. I don't know if you want the whole background. I'm going into like when I was three. So.
2: <laughs> as much um, as you want, sure. Okay,
0: yeah. And he worked for Chase Studio in the industry while I was in grad school, and we decided. And I had started a, another business um, then, writing interactive computer programs for museums and nature centers. And we decided at some point to combine our skills. business side and the art side. Um, And it was an extremely humble start. We had um, we started an artifact and fossil reproduction business, trying to get our name into museums. So we had a whole catalog, but we we literally started on the kitchen table, a renovated chicken coop, the loft of the horse barn um, kind of thing. Very humble, hacking our wares out of the back of a pickup truck kind of thing, you know, so very, very humble, um, you know, and slow start, you know, as we bootstrapped our, our growth, um, but one of the things when I was in college studying business, um, that back then they didn't have as many entrepreneurial small business classes. So I was taking SBA classes at night and I was reading Ink Magazine even back then. So, as you know, maybe still a teenager, 20 years old, I told Joe, I'm going to make the Ink 500 someday. And then Taylor Studios, roughly 10 years later, made the Ink 500. So we were. Able to get off the kitchen table <laughs> at some point and become, you know, a multi-million dollar business. Um, so that's the the start of it. And you know, now over 30 years later, um, you know, we've made the Inc. 500, the Inc. 5,000 twice, and you know, we have over 750 projects in 45 states and four countries. Um, so we've got a massive portfolio and and legacy of work that we've done as a company.
1: That's fantastic, and such an excellent story. Thanks so much for sharing with uh, sharing that with us. I, I and I know that we want to dive deep into talking about kind of the the components of exhibit design and, and talk about that as well. Uh, but first, I'm wondering if we can I, I expand a little bit more on kind of the, the combination of art and business. I, mostly, how often do those maybe bleed over into each other as the business side? How much of the art side do you need to know? And then even over on on the art side, how much the the business aspect needs to flow into that as well?
0: Right. Yeah. And we call ourselves that a combination of art and business because I think we're different than a lot of creative art firms in that we had the business mind right from the start. Um, you know, we certainly are known in the industry for our scenic work, our biological accuracy, you know, our creativity, our design, but I think what sets us apart is our processes. So in building that business off the kitchen table, I developed, you know, the process side of the business and that, that you know, project management, quality control, um, you know, standards and operating procedures and policies and, you know, the hiring practices, all that business stuff was also built. And I think what it brings for our clients is peace of mind. You know, they know we're gonna communicate effectively. They know it's gonna be collaborative. They know we're gonna hit the schedule and the budget. And so it's that I think is different than a lot of, I think a lot of the companies I see are started by the artist or the designer, not the business person. And so we see that as a unique aspect of Taylor Studios. Um, They do cross over a lot, you know, and so, um, you know, Jason Cox is, our, is was our creative director now VP of operations because he's recently been promoted. But you know, he knows the project management processes and it, you know the how to do 5s in the shop so that we're efficient and how we produce so that our client we have process boards that follow a component around the shop floor and that's the communication from our client because it's you know the picture that they sent us is on that board that follows the component. Um, and so it crosses over a lot. Did that describe it? Does that
2: absolutely? Yeah, yeah. 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 Thank you. Uh-huh. yeah.
0: And, and I'm
2: wondering if we can go even further, maybe down that rabbit hole a little bit, and and talk a little bit about the the people that are you know kind of on both sides of those businesses. Because you know when you think about a business person and you think about an artist, they can have very very different personalities and very different uh, priorities. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to? maybe marry those two together or get them to work as as cohesively as possible.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. It's left brain, right brain. Yeah. I, I used to joke and maybe I shouldn't, is that, you know, artists have a lot of feelings <laughs> and I'm very, I'm very goal oriented and logical and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it is a different type of people to work together. Um, you know, so some of what we do, like one of, one of the things is we, um, we study, have you studied disc personality profiles?
2: We use it all the time. Absolutely. Okay.
0: Yeah. So we all take that test and we all know each other and we all know that all of us are different and it's okay, but how do we work? How do we communicate with a high D who is, you know, get her or, or that's, you know, zooming through the company. And I then have to learn how to slow down and have the conversation and be aware of their feelings. And, um, and so we, we coach and practice all of that, yeah. um, and so that's a lot of it. And you know, we're very goal oriented. There's a lot of um, metrics set for each department. So that's that's one way that we can cross those boundaries. We have time goals for every component in the shop and and in design. And so that helps cross it. I think you know, it's just sort of how do you bring the groups together? You know, we have coffee and donuts, you know, once a month on the shop floor to make sure that the administrative and design side are communicating with the production side, Um, you know, weekly company meetings. It's that communication process, right? How do you get these two different types of People working together towards the same goal, you know, and that's a leader's job, right? Is to get a group of people moving towards the same vision. So you have to uh, work on those communication processes, of, you know, that cross different types of people. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And what about challenges that really come with doing that? And kind of, you know, like you said, it's it's that right right brain, left brain type of type of mindset, and, and really that balance. Because uh, on the business side, I can imagine it, it would be easy to say we can't spend money on that because it, you know, it'll impact this from the budget itself. And then from the art side of that and say, no, like this is, this is what will make it what it is. And, you know, and we would need to, you know, spend this extra money on that as as far as that. And uh, obviously that's just kind of a a very generic perspective on that, but curious as far as looking at the business, but sometimes through the art lens, but also the, the other way around as well.
0: Yeah, I you know once again I do think it's those processes. You know the artists always um, want to create this art piece and keep going and keep going. And so when we have these time goals, it's okay. So this is what the client paid for. This is how we budgeted it through design. You know, and it's it's sending those um, that that documentation out to the shop floor, so that communication is out there, so they have the drawings and the um and the goals of the project and the mission, um and you know, they're measured, you know, you manage what you measure. So, so that helps. Um, But it's also listening, obviously listening to the creative side. You can't not have that or we wouldn't be here. That's what the clients want from us. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's a collaborative process with all the team members and the client. Um, but you have parameters. It's it is working. Sometimes it's working within the box, not outside the box. And and I think sometimes within the box you can be more creative. You have some guardrails, and and so we've you know created those guardrails. And so now, how can we give the client the best thing within these guardrails? And then that can be challenge. You know that can be a challenge, a creative challenge. Um, and exciting, because then you've got to brainstorm and come up with how do we create the best thing for our client within these guardrails.
2: Yeah, I've, I've heard that concept before where people talk about limitations like you put limitations or guardrails on things, and it actually forces you to be more creative than you thought you would have been because you you can't be blue sky right, right. You've got to kind of keep it within the within the rail so to speak. So can you talk a little bit about maybe the process, um, you know, as Josh was talking about kind of getting into, you know, the exhibit design and, you know, the, maybe the psychology behind it and how you, you bring people into that, that world. So what is sort of that process that you use at Taylor Studios?
0: You know, in our, one of the things um, is the interpretive design process. And that's been really impactful for us as a company, you know, which we, incorporated over 20 years ago. I I can't remember because it's been 30 some years. But it's sort of a mission-based storytelling approach. um, And that drives our design. And so we start with the client. It's the story first before you create the 3D immersive experience. We want to know what is your central theme, your sub theme, and your storylines. And that's the guiding principle behind it all. It's almost like a company's mission statement. You know, it's like you got to stay within that mission. And so if you're designing something for the prairie and somebody donates a polar bear, you don't, that tells you, no, you're not going to put the polar bear in there, you know, unless there's some kind of compare and contrast kind of (laughs) thing. But we use an interpretive design process. And so we start at the beginning with creating that story, getting approval from the story. And sometimes that's hard for the clients because they want the, the whiz bang drawings right out of the shoot. And we're like, no, let's agree on the story first. The story drives everything. And so then it's just a, as you know a gradual building up of the design. You start with the story, You you know, you move to thumbnails and like projects and, you know, you just develop those components over, you know, our design process often takes more than a year, you know, sometimes longer than that, depending on the size of the project or the, you know, the scope of the project. And then it goes into construction detail, vinyl graphic design, um, and then out to the shop floor for fabrication. And then the guys that fabricate also install it. So that's a brief overview of a year and a half long process sometimes. Sometimes we do fab only, and so then those go faster. Uh, We're known, like I said, we are known for scenic work. So often others come to us to do that fabrication work for their projects that they've designed.
1: One of the things that I've always been curious about is communicating the story to even the most passive visitors. And I'll I'll give some context to to why I I think about this every now and then is I I do a lot of work with guest feedback and, and analyzing things like TripAdvisor reviews. And one of the things that I've seen, particularly in museums and aquariums, that one of the biggest complaints that they would get on TripAdvisor or on Yelp or Google reviews or whatever it is, is they would say, well, the the aquarium is too small. And then they would follow that up and say, we were in and out in 45 minutes. And then you pull that back and you say, okay, well, they're not complaining about the size of the building. They're complaining that they just went through it, right? They just, they just sort of plowed through and said, check, check, check. I saw all the exhibits and, and I left uh, yeah. versus actually stopping and engaging with it. And there's probably a lot more than if they would actually slow down a little and take their time through it, but right. it's also self-paced as well. Yeah. So being able to, to take that, that mission, like you said, of, of the project, extract the story from it, and then deliver it, not to the guests that says, I want to learn everything there is to know about this particular topic, but right. I want to visit the museum, I want to, uh, you know, I, I want to go, you know, take my family and have a fun day out.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, um, you know, I think, I think the immersive experience is important um, in engaging them. Also, you know, as I mentioned, you know, scenic is, is good, so for us, um, you know, for instance, we created a a life-size rebar wooly mammoth and paleo hunter for Horicon Marsh. And it attracts people from the road and brings them into the education center. And, you know, as far as impactful and passive, even if they don't read anything, which, you know, I would say don't have a lot of Words (laughs) words <laughs> in your design, um, they're going to know some history and some of the story. So we call those big wows, you know, and so there's those big wow visual experiences that happen. And we, and we create little wows too. So it might be a bird model, it might be, and those can help engage in um, inspire the visitor just by a visual. But I would say it's also, you know, I think immersive is still really important. You wanna transform the visitor to another time and place. You can't do that everywhere, budgets and and so forth. But I think if you can create an immersive environment, that's gonna be impactful. I think it being interactive is important so that you're engaging all the senses, you know, whether it's just a cranky do or, um, you know, high tech AV, T- type of experience. I think the more you can engage all their senses will you know help the visitor not just be passive and zoom through. Um, you know so it's all those things it's the story it's how you've laid it out as far as the visitor flow and them understanding that story so that interpretive approach again and so they they aren't confused when they're going through a story that they're at the end you know they know that it's a a flow through so it's that's really important Um, using a variety of of media I think is important not just static you know graphics or things like that using a a variety will also engage them. And so we, we, you know, we've been fortunate enough to create a lot of big wows. There's another one, there's a giant red tailed hawk nest in Lake County, uh, Chicago area. Um, that's an outdoor classroom, but the kids can put their head into this giant eagle nest and look out onto this ravine and see through how, how an eagle would see. Um, so that's another example. Gettysburg, it's the psychorama is an immersive experience. Of course, not all our clients can afford that, but in, you know the more that you can do a variety of media, a variety of uh, communication approaches, I think, will help them not just passively zoom through.
2: And is cranky do? Is that a specific, special? Just, is it's that, a, technical is a technical term?
0: term? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I hope I didn't go over your head. <laughs> I was gonna have to Google that. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but one mechanical. Of this... <laughs> you know, you can use a mechanical interactive versus a electrical versus a push button. I think using a variety is helpful.
2: I love that. I love that. Um, no, and what, what what made me what that made me think of a little bit is kind of the difference of what I've seen, and I'm you know not a museum expert, but what I've seen the difference between, for example, a children's museum and someone that something that's you know geared toward adults, where the children's museum has it's all hands on, right? Yeah. It's all things that they can do and touch and cranky doos and all these things, yeah. and the adult ones and maybe they you know were were designed many years ago or whatever, but it's a static uh, yeah. display and a lot of words. Yeah, right? and then you know, where where did the where do we think the thought process stop? That adults don't like cranky dudes, right? And adults, don't right? Like yeah, they do.
0: I love cranky dudes. Yeah,
2: so <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's really fascinating. As you talk about you know your mission based storytelling and that flow and using all the different kind of media, I think that's really fascinating. That. I, th- I think there's opportunity out there still for some people that, you know, are kind of in that, well, adults can read. So we're going to give them lots of words.
0: Uh, yeah. Who wants to go there to read a book? They want to go there for a unique experience. Yeah. And every client has a different story to tell. So it has to be a unique way that you're telling it or they won't come, you know, they want to go, especially um, the younger generation, they want an experience. And so you've you've got to use a multitude of approaches to tell that story. And yeah, who wants to go there and read a book, right? Yeah, it, it is hard though. Our clients love their subject matter and their content, so it is difficult sometimes to convince them to not have so many words. <laughs> but you know, that's our role as the you know expert advisor on on this approach. So um, we try to avoid that.
1: <laughs> yeah, is part of the thought process though about. There's what happens while they're in the exhibit, so there's the duration of the experience itself, but also to get their gears turning of they can go get a book afterwards. They can do that on their own time. Right. or we have Google. If I yeah. want to learn more about the this hawk, you know I can I can search it you know on, online and, and look at, at way more information that could fit on any signage in a museum on my own time. So right. is there kind of that element of saying, I, you know, I I hear the term spark curiosity a lot and really trying to like kind of assign like concrete meaning to that to say, like, it's not just about while you are here, but it's what you're thinking about on the drive home. Right.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the interpretive approach does include those goals. Like what actions do we want the visitors take to take after they leave you know if they remember one thing what is it when they leave we do a lot of nature nature related stuff we do cultural history and and all that but you know a lot of it is you know maybe when I go home I plant a milkweed so that I help the monarchs and there usually is a mission-based objective that we want the visitors to take once they go home Um, and so that's part of creating the design that you have that impact. Like, how can I now go change the world? You know, now that I've been to this really unique site that has showed me an eagle in a different way that I've never seen it before, <laughs> you know, what can I do uh, to make the world a better place as a visitor to this place? I think almost all of our clients have that, that sort of objectives in mind, and we help them set those in that initial workshop. Um, what, are, what are the objectives for the visitor after they leave this place?
2: And do you find Betty that, that the messaging of that is different depending, depending on the facility, like it's, there could be some that's very explicit, like go do this, go plant that milkweed versus we're going to let you experience the, the facility. And then if you are so inclined to do something, we're not going to tell you what to do, but go do something like, is is that? Oh, yeah. Different with different clients.
0: I think so. Yeah. I don't know that it's, the mo- most of the time it's not as direct like go plant a milkweed it's, yeah. it's more obscure. Um, you know, we did a, ju- uh, a project on Lincoln, um, and we it was kind of this life review and you walk through this, this sort of Alice in Wonderland you know, it was, it was when he, it was when he, um, after he was shot and then he died, I think like eight hours later. So it was like, he was doing his own life review. So, you know, it was kind of wonky and stuff. And you went through his life and what he learned, but it was like, live like Lincoln. So it was teaching people, here are his values and you can have those values too. And you, and you could walk away with a card of the, you know, one of the values you wanted to try to implement Uh, of Lincoln. So, you know, completely different than go plant a milkweed. This is how you can live your life like Lincoln lived his, as an example of what, you know, what they wanted to achieve with those visitors.
2: Okay.
1: Yeah. And, And now that really takes kind of the concept of an exhibit within, within a museum or within the, you know, this facility and really turning it into I, you know, this is, this is going to improve your life. This is going to make you a better person. So now we're kind of extending beyond experience into transformation, which I know is a topic of of some conversations we've, we've had in the past as well. I, I, are there misconceptions around that, around, you know, to say, uh, you know, this, this is the goal, you know, using, you know, live like Lincoln as an example, uh, towards kind of creating that, transformational experience or are there some things that uh, some venues might not necessarily think from the forefront that perhaps they kind of need to have uh, need to have a little bit more of it uncovered?
0: Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know that all the clients have that type of aspiration like I'm going to change your life. You know, there's, you know, we did, um, you know, recently in Fort Bend, Texas, it was more about local history. Um, so it might not be changing your life, but you know, did you know that this happened here? And uh, you know, it's more informational and awareness of. Um, that one, you know, had a, a diversity stint, and some of the, the early explorers that came and changed the community, and they were African American, and so it's, you know, it might awake you to other historical aspects that broaden your horizons as a visitor, um, you know, it might not be, you know, live like Lincoln and go change the values that you live by, but it's informative enough that makes you maybe a more open-minded um, person, um, as an ex- as one example. Um, So, yeah, I mean, obviously every client is different and their goals for, you know, the visitor experience are different. And so um, if I think the, wow, if you can create that transformational experience, that's, that's pretty, I would say that's successful, right? If you can have that impact on visitors, whether it's about history or nature, and you've, you've clicked something with them and it makes them think about things in a different way, then that's a successful exhibit, I would say. And if they come
2: back and tell other
0: people and And tell other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm wondering if we can switch gears just a little bit, um, because I know we wanted to get into talking a little bit about the business side and kind of small businesses and some advice that you have, because you've got experience uh, with that and thinking about you know, there's a lot of people that start a business like you did. Right. And eventually they're not going to be part of that business anymore. Right. Whether they sell it or they just close the business or whatever the case may be. So I'm wondering what some of the advice that you have or things that you've experienced over the years that might help people who are listening, who are running a small business and maybe even thinking about an exit strategy or what they should be doing um, kind of to think about it more long term
0: right? Well, I mean, I think that's the key, right? Do think long-term. You need to plan your exit strategy way in advance because maybe your first idea won't work like mine didn't. So I had plan A, B, and C. I had contingency plans. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting. I, I was on our economic development board here locally, and they talked about how many baby boomers that own businesses that don't have an exit strategy. I mean, this could be a really, um, hurtful thing, both for our industry and just our general economy, if all those baby boomers don't have an exit strategy, and those businesses just shut their doors, Mm -hmm. you know, that's Mm -hmm. a sad thing to lose. So, you know, I would really encourage people to think about their exit strategy well in advance. And, you know, I've read something like, you know, people think about it, at the last minute, and then there's a health issue, or there's something like that, and and uh, now you've just affected your employees, your clients, and your community by not having planned this. So certainly encourage that, um, and I think. Having, you know, those business practices in place is going to benefit you if you decide to sell or if you, you know, sell it to your employees or let some leaders take over. Um, you have to have good business practices so the business can go on after you. And if you're a solo entrepreneur, you have to develop a leadership team, you know, who can take this company on. And so you've got to develop leaders within your company that can continue to run it, you um, I think one of the things I'm seeing, because uh, we, we may acquire other companies and so we're, we're dating <laughs> other companies and I've seen poor financial statements. So pre- following um, you know, acceptable accounting practices when you're creating your financials is gonna be really critical. I think uh, having a contact database, so you have a list of all your clients, you have a book of work, Um, you have processes in place so that if a new owner comes in, they can come in and run it fairly easily without being dependent on you. It can't just be in your head. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs forget to get that. You've got to develop process, procedure, standards, documentation so that it's not in one person's head. That that makes it really risky if you you do that. Um, And so I think all those things need to be thought about well in advance and then where you're weak as a company, start developing those well in advance of the potential exit that you'll take as a small business owner. Okay.
1: And it sounds like a lot of the guidance that you're giving here, too, as far as these business practices, uh, even if whether you're thinking about it as an exit strategy or even just operational procedures, I think this is good advice in, in general both, right? of, yeah. Uh, yeah. of so many business owners who haven't taken a vacation in 20 years, because if they step away from it from a moment, then it's it's going to crumble because they they haven't built the system around them to thrive whether they're at the office or whether they're they're on vacation, whether they're out of the office, uh, in in any way. Uh, so when you talk about kind of the you know the, the exit strategy and, and selling the business. Are those always synonymous with each other because i I feel like there could be other exit strategies as well whether it's you know selling the business or or even if it's you know promoting the next in line or kind of just just otherwise business continuity beyond you mentioned solopreneurs or even small business owners
0: oh absolutely i think there's many approaches to what that could be and so you have to decide you know what works for you and your company um You know, I had uh, originally an intent, I had a consultant for three years help me teach my leadership team what it means to be an owner. And I thought I might sell to my leadership team. Well, that didn't, that didn't turn out, you know, you know, they got to be willing to take the risk and um, put some hand in the game. And that didn't happen for me. So then I went out to the external environment and looked for the right buyer. I wasn't going to sell it to someone that was just going to flip it or not keep the staff on board or not keep our values and mission and who we were. I wanted it to go on as Taylor Studios. So, so, um, so then I put it out there for sale and then that worked out, but I had plan C too. You know, you can also do an ESOP. You can sell it to your employees. Um, You know, so you have, you have to think that through because plan one might not work, but there are a variety of options to not just shut the doors. I do think though, I mean, if you look at the statistics, I think it's, don't quote me on this, but it's something like 90% of business just liquidate. They don't go on. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's something that needs to be well thought out. And I think your point of, if you can't take a vacation, that's sort of a signal that you haven't set up your business in a way that it can operate without you.
2: Yeah. And I've worked with a number of family businesses and, you know, we talk about, about succession planning and their idea of succession planning is having kids. And that's not necessarily (laughs) you never
0: know how that's going to turn out. Exactly.
2: (laughs) They don't want to be in the industry or whatever. So, um, I guess maybe are there any, uh, thoughts or words of wisdom for family businesses who, you know, maybe their, their plan a is for it to stay in the family, but maybe that's not the right way to go, or that's maybe not best even for the business.
0: I think, you know, obviously be open-minded to that might not happen. Um, you know, they might not be the right person to run the business. You know, I mean, if you're, you know, I was very concerned about taking care of this. I mean, I have several 20 year veterans here. I want to take care of my employees. Um, so you want to have the, the leaders that can do that well also, right? Um, So I would say, yeah, have plan B and C. And I, you know, I would think one of the things I think about myself as an entrepreneur that might be different um, than others is I've always been a long-term thinker. So I would think most entrepreneurs are. So this is one of the things you got to think about. You know, it might be, you know, we've even thought about in the years that I did the business, I had, (laughs) I had what we called the death plan and the drool plan. Because as, a, as the only owner of the company, what if I fell off a horse and I couldn't come into work? So I talked about that with my leadership team and each of us had that, but I had my will and trust in place so that, you know, my clients wouldn't be hurt either if something happened to me. I mean, I think that's our responsibility as business owners to take care of our employees and our clients. And if you haven't, if you gotta be able to talk about these, the people don't like to talk about it, right? They don't want to yeah. talk about their will and I might die or I might get hurt and I can't do my job. What are we gonna do if that happens? And and with the leadership team, um, it's important to talk about that too because. What are their wives going to, or partners going to expect if they get hurt and they can't work for six months? What do they expect out of the company? And so having those conversations so that it's really clear, so it's not a surprise when it happens, I think is a good thing, a good business practice too.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Having the uncomfortable conversations that you don't want to talk about just in case you do have to talk about them, or you yeah. do have to have those conversations one day, I. So it, it sounds like there's there's a lot of I, I would say importance of. Leveraging your skill set, or you know, I hear a lot of people struggle with delegation because they're, you know, they they started the business because they're the best at this specific task. I, you know, do you have any any tips or tricks for being able to do that? Like, for instance, I, I'm a huge fan of Tim Ferriss and the Four Hour Work Week and yeah. that whole philosophy. So I'm feeling a little a little of those vibes there. But just curious as far as I, you know, best ways to to be able to to leverage and delegate.
0: Yeah, I think um, a leader has to, right? If, you, if you're going to grow, I mean, maybe if you're, you're a five-person company, but if you have ambitions to grow and you have a, a number of staff, you have to learn to delegate and let go and coach and mentor the people to be there. So I often told my leadership team, be, not do. You're not the doer. You're teaching other people to do you're B, you're there to guide them. Um, I mean, we're, we're small enough, we all have to do, but it's sort of, it helps them think about it. You know, be not do um, when you know that, you know, that person might take longer to do it than you do it. It, it um, might not be the same way you've done it, but that's okay. And so that was part of the leadership training. We, ha- we coach, we do coaching and stuff is is teaching the leadership team to develop the people under them. You, you must have people- that will step into your shoes at some point. And that means you can't do everything. And we are trying to develop a knowledge database. Um, sometimes it's all stuck in, like in Jason's head, and we got to get it out of his head. You know, even though I say that, it's still a struggle to get all this stuff out of the, you know, the heads of the longtime people. And so we're developing a knowledge database. Um, so we're documenting some of the stuff and checklists, and where are things saved, and um, we'll start taking videos so those are are there um, so people have a reference database where they can go see this stuff but then they can make it their own
2: yeah so so betty a lot of what you've been talking about over the last uh, 35 40 minutes has been uh, amazing to talk about leadership and businesses and things like that i'm curious if you were either to go back to when you first started the business or to give advice to someone you know in the in that uh position of starting a business what would that advice be either to your your former self or or to um uh, to somebody starting a business?
0: Yeah. I think, you know, we're, I think we're going to make mistakes right all along the way. So don't be too hard on yourself. I did in the early, and I had a coach. I was with the VISTAs organization for a long time. So I got to meet with other business owners because it can be a lonely position if you're the owner. And so I had this other group of business owners I could bounce ideas off of and they would hold me accountable. And I had a coach and, and all of that. Um, and one of the things I struggled with early, and this might just be dependent on you as an individual, but I would beat myself up when I made mistakes, or I made a management mistake, or I said something the wrong way, um, and you know that doesn't help anybody. You know, and so just give yourself a break if you make mistakes. That's going to happen. That's how you learn. Um, I think you know, probably like everyone says, you know, be a constant learner. You know, I was constantly reading um, business or our industry information, Inc. Magazine, business books, and, you know, apply what works for you. Um, Be a constant learner. Um, You know, effective communication is key. So one of the things we teach around here is a Crucial Conversations book. So we teach that across the company. So we we encourage people to have the conversation. Don't, Don't not have it. Don't avoid it. And then recently we started reading Radical Candor and I shared some of that, you know, and it's being as a leader, you have to be an effective communicator. You have to be able to clearly spell out your expectations and hold people accountable and if you're not clear you know that's a poor leadership trait so working Mm -hmm. on those communication clarity and how to communicate effectively is going to be good i'd also say work on your own self-awareness you know that might be emotional intelligence training it might be go to therapy Um, but the better you know yourself the better you're going to work with other people and it's leadership is all about working with other people. So the more you know yourself, the better you're going to work with others. So um, yeah, I mean, in a, in, in a brief sense, that's what I would recommend.
2: That's great advice. A lot of great advice.
0: Yeah.
1: So, Betty, at the time of this recording, uh, you've recently uh, stepped out of the president role with Taylor Studios and would love to know how that transition has been, as well as what's next for Betty.
0: Yeah, you know, I obviously wanted to take care of this place. It's like sending your kid off to college, right? This is my baby. <laughs> and so, you know, I've uh, it's been a slow transition of training the leadership, getting them ready, um, you know, teaching them everything I, I can so that they're successful as they move into my shoe, shoes. And then now I'm, uh, as of Monday, so just four days, I am not president. And so I call myself the founder and the ambassador, but I'm here still, you know, reaching out to clients and things like that. So I'm here in case they need me. And so probably you know, in a month or so, I'll completely exit, um, still be the ambassador. I'll still have my email address with Taylor Studios and those kind of things. But then I am writing a book. I'm writing sort of a memoir on the journey with Taylor Studios. Um, and so that's what I'll be working on. And I have a farm, so I get to have some more horse time and I'm doing conservation work on the farm. And, and so, uh, it's sort of a sabbatical period where I'm working on my book and figure out who is Betty if I'm not Taylor studios, which I haven't figured that out yet. So that's, that's going to take some time for me. Yeah. Yeah. A whole new world.
2: Writing a book certainly is a journey. I'm, I'm curious what, what inspired you to, take your knowledge and, and your, your experiences and put it into that medium. There's obviously doing what you do at Taylor studios. You know, there's a lot of different ways to tell that story. Um, I'm curious why, why a book?
0: Yeah. You know, I, um, it, it was a lifeless thing. So I'm a goal achiever. So that was one of them, but I actually started it. Oh, maybe it's been two years. So, I, you know, i have a it, it's a slow process. Cause I was just doing it here and there as I was running the company. Um, and I think, So it was the lifeless thing at that time, it was sort of to help Taylor Studios too to get our name out there, some credibility, you know, to use that as a speaking um, possibility, those kind of things, which it might still be, you know, um, it'll still be to help Taylor Studios, I, you know, always be cheering the company on Um, now it's just sort of I. this is my new thing, you know. I don't necessarily think it's going to make money, but it's what I want to do with Betty's time is to learn. You know, I've been writing a blog. Taylor Studios has a blog, so I've been doing that for over ten years. So, trying to develop my writing skills, I do have a writing coach. So, um, you know, when you ask what advice would you give with people, you know, I noticed I've had coaches all the way along. So, I would encourage people to do that. Now, it's a whole new genre for me, so I'm learning how to write. Um, so hopefully it will help small business owners and it, it, it will, you know, it's a creative business. So it's not like product-based it's a small company. And I think a lot of the books out there are like Nike and Pixar, you know, so here's how you can do it, this creative work, um, have a small business, but it doesn't have to be Nike. So I hope it inspires people that way too.
2: Excellent.
1: Awesome. Can't wait to read it. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Maddie, this has been a, such a fascinating conversation as we uh, start to wind down this interview here. If people want to learn more about Taylor Studios or if they want to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them?
0: Yeah, well, certainly our website, tailorstudios.com. Um, and we're on all the social networks. So you can find Taylor Studios on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. Um, me too. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, you know, eventually I'll have my own author website. So you can look for that someday. i um, working on that now. Um, but encourage you everybody to go to Taylor Studios website.
2: Awesome. Very good. Well, again, Betty, thank you so much for your time. This, like Josh said, this has been a wonderful and fascinating conversation. And for everybody out there and listening, just remember, We are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make
1: sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review
2: on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.